Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Nonprofit Coach Podcast. Since 2010, the most listened to show in the nonprofit sector dedicated to helping your charity succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to fundraising success. And practical nonprofit management advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach Podcast with Ted Hart is the perfect landing point to learn from experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is, without a doubt, one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books range from successful online fundraising to expert nonprofit management. Guests on the Nonprofit Podcast are leaders in their field who share their insider tips and trade secrets in a conversational style both the experienced and novice will benefit from. Ted and his guests help you and your organization move to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. After the show, you can find all of our podcasts at tedhart.com on iTunes, and now, just say, Alexa, play Nonprofit Coach on TuneIn. Now, welcome the host of the Nonprofit Coach Podcast, Ted Hart. And welcome here to this latest edition of the Nonprofit Coach Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. If you've come to hear all about how you can have a highly effective nonprofit board of directors, you have come to the right place. We've got an expert here with us today who is going to fill you in on the best trade secrets on how you can make sure that you are on the right path to put your organization back on the right path or to get started on building a highly effective nonprofit board. And to start off, we always start with page one. Over here on page one, Steve Nill is joining us. He's a publisher of Charity Channel Press, and today we get to say happy birthday to Stephen Nill. Welcome back. <laughs> Thank you, Ted. It's always great to be here. Thank you for the birthday wishes. In addition to celebrating your birthday today, you're also uh, going to introduce our uh, speaker today, our uh, uh, page two expert, uh, but also tell us a little bit about um, how this book came together. Thank you. I'd love to. Um, James Mueller uh, has been someone that I very much enjoyed working with. Um, he, uh, before I get into his, his professional background, which is extensive, as are the guests on your show, typically, Ted, um, let me mention that he came first with a book about um, a very difficult subject. Um, he wrote a, about, um, he wrote a book from the journal covering the loss of, of his son. His son passed away at a young age. Um, and his book, uh, which is also new, is called Lyrics of a Broken Heart, A Father's Journey Toward 
wholeness. And that was the first opportunity that I had to work um, uh, with Jim. And it was an amazing experience. The, the book is actually very uplifting, especially if anyone has gone through or will go through the loss of a loved one, which is pretty much the human condition. And it's just a remarkable book. And he's a remarkable man. And he and I have become really good friends um, while working together. But we're here to talk about a uh, professional level book for our nonprofit peers called Onboarding Champions, the essential guidebook for every nonprofit board member and executive. The book is due out in um, just a few days. Uh, and um, I, so let me explain a little bit about Jim and about his book and then turn it over to you guys because I know you have a lot of questions, Ted. Um, like so many of your guests, Jim has been in the sector for decades, four decades in his case, uh, where he's been working with or serving on nonprofit boards, among many other things. He spent his first 10 years um, professional life devoted to Cornell, which is his alma mater, uh, which was followed by positions, executive positions at Northwestern University, Advocate Healthcare, Lake Forest, Graduate School of Management and Goodwill Industries. Um, that accounts for about his, about 30 years in the sector, and it, then he took over the position of COO at uh, Grensbach, Glier and Associates, which is an international philanthropy consulting firm, quite well known. Um, and then today he is um, uh, uh, the principal of. Uh, James Mueller and Associates, so he's a consultant, as so many uh, of our of our great authors are, actually, not surprising. A good source for writers, actually, in our sector. Um, now, Jim uh, originally um, came to me with the idea of, of a book covering um, some, uh, several aspects of board member recruitment and onboarding and retention and so forth that... Um, really had his own unique perspective and, and insights, and I was so impressed with it. I got really excited about his book, and I've been working with him um, throughout all the phases of writing and editing and layout and all that. It's been a real real pleasure. He covers, um, in, in the recruitment area, things like culture, character, competence, connections, composition, and in the onboarding aspects, continuity, it's a big area for him. He covers that extensively in the book. And collaboration, if you, if you notice, he's rather fond of alliteration. <laughs> and, uh, I, and, and I think at one point he was thinking of calling the, you know, using the, the, the seven C's as a, as, a, as a play on the words. And uh, he, uh, he navigated away from that idea and came up with the current title. But the, the idea of, of really looking at each of these aspects of recruitment and, and onboarding brought such a clarity to the process that I have rarely seen in a book. And um, I just really enjoyed working on this. I think it's, I've seen a lot of books on uh, governance. I've published several myself, and of course I've read lots more. And this just really was different in the sense that you know, I, I really came away with a model in my mind of how 
how to think about recruitment and onboarding in, in related areas, and it was just a refreshing thing to work on. And so I'm looking forward to the book coming out. I know you have a lot of questions, Ted, so I'm going to uh, back out. Maybe someone will give me some birthday cake while I'm listening, but um, I'm really excited to listen to you guys talk. I really am. Well, thank you so much, uh, Steve Neal. Again, happy birthday, and we're going to head right on over to page two. And as Steve Neal mentioned, uh, James Mueller is now here with me over here on page two. Welcome, Mr. Mueller. Thank you very much. Well, you've got a terrific uh, book here, and I have to say thank you uh, for sending it ahead of uh, publication. Uh, we certainly do appreciate you previewing this here on the Nonprofit Coach, because I, I really think that um, my listeners are in for uh, a, a real treat here and having the time with you, uh, because I think the, the, the book is so well laid out. And, and I want to start off by just sort of uh, peeling back a little bit of the, the mystery of boards of directors. And I want to start right off with, uh, with your title, uh, Onboarding Champions, because you could, you could view that from a couple of different perspectives, could, could you not? You could, you could view that as champions for the organization, but also you want your board of directors to be made up of, of champions. So um, talk to me a little bit about starting just with the concept of of a board of directors and which approach you took. Sure. Uh, the, uh, the title itself, it, both meetings are appropriate. It's about onboarding champions and, and that is those individuals who really understand governance, know how to plug in and uh, be of great benefit to the organization. And the other part of being a champion is the champion for the nonprofit. Board members have a tremendous ability to really place the nonprofit into the eyes of their communities in ways that the staff can't. And they just need to be champion storytellers of the cause. And so that's where that title came from. I want to share with my listeners that, you know, this, this book, first of all, I think is just very approachable. Um, and that's one of the things I really like uh, about this book. As, as uh, all of us know, there are so many books that are written uh, about boards of directors and, and governance, and and some are, are you know just very sort of uh, you know text heavy um, or or you know sort of formulaic. What I like about this is it is it breaks it down into two separate sections, which um, I do want to take the time on on this podcast to cover you know, each of the areas that you've laid out here. Uh, but the two distinct areas that, that you have uh, spelled out is recruitment and then onboarding. So let's, let's first start off with uh, recruitment, um, you know, which is, you know, I think, you know, one of the most important uh, things that a nonprofit can engage in is recruiting a, a, a good solid board of directors. But, but let's face it, a lot of, Nonprofit organizations, you know, really sort of, you know, basically I'll take anybody who can fog up a mirror uh, if they'll say <laughs> yes, that they'll put their name on a, on a ballot. Um, but th- that really, right. we should really have higher standards. Um, and, and you have outlined um, in, uh, in this section uh, five different areas um, that need to be focused on uh, for recruitment. So I'm going to ask you to actually walk us through 
uh, each of these. And so let's start off with culture and what you mean by culture as it relates to recruitment of a board of directors. Yeah, one thing I did for each title, and I appreciate your recognition of its approachability, because I felt if it wasn't, no one's going to read it anyway. And if it wasn't put out there in a way that it could be applied, it would be of no use to anyone. So any beginning of each chapter, for example, I define the meaning of the word. So, for instance, culture, it's the unspoken assumptions about how people should think, feel, and act, and the behaviors that result from those assumptions so many times I've seen boards not reach their potential because the board didn't click or it didn't have the right culture that's a performance-oriented culture. It might be more casual or something. So really digging into how do you create the right culture, and the research tells us that it's based in knowing what your core values are and living them. So part of what I discuss in, in the culture chapter is how to identify and describe your core values, how they're unique to your own nonprofit and how they anchor you in every way in terms of building your culture through your performance. I sort of viewed the first two um, areas that you write about in your book under, again, the the first section, recruitment. You focus first, as we just mentioned, culture, and then you move on to character. And I I sort of viewed those two um, put together as sort of how self-aware uh, is the board of directors itself as they seek to identify new members. And, and, and that seems to be something that you, you feel is extremely important. Yeah. I, there's another consultant that I was just reading this morning that his position is dismiss nonprofit boards because they're useless and it's the CEO's job. Well, the problem with that premise is that it's the legal responsibility of every nonprofit is to be Uh, responsible to the public trust. And so boards of directors are trustees of the public trust. And so that needs to be paid attention to. And so character comes out to be a big piece of that. And I described the definition I use is who we are behind our social masks and what shows up when the pressure is on. Because it's interesting to see how people show up. And I had a couple of instances that I go over with the board where people weren't treating each other very well. And so once we brought attention to that, they ended up really thinking about how do we want to conduct ourselves? What character do we want our members to possess? And by the end of that discussion about how they treated one another, they came up with a number of of wonderful core values regarding how they should treat one another. Um, So character counts. One uh, other author that we've had here on the show on on a couple of uh, several occasions, Case Sprinkle Grace, um, speaks on on this topic um, uh, quite a lot, and uh, we we've uh, sort of mused on on the topic that you just raised, and that is uh, of uh, the role of the CEO uh, and how mm-hmm. often the problems come back to um, a CEO who is rather consciously or unconsciously undermining the board of directors because quite honestly building and maintaining a strong board of directors is hard work. (laughs) It absolutely is hard work. And I've seen it go both ways. I've seen instances where the board undermines the work of the CEO. So I dig into that pretty explicitly in the chapter on continuity about how the board and CEO are partners. Because if you look at the Right. The original title. Well, I think we don't don't, don't spoil it. We're, don't spoil it. We're going to come to that. Um, I want yeah. I want to stay on 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 task here uh, and, sure. and keep you uh, talking about recruitment. 
Um, but I think adjacent to what we're talking about here is moving on to competence. Right, right. Originally, 10 years ago, as I was trying to define how do you recruit a board in a way that people could apply it, I came up with character, competence, and connections, which the connections is the next one. But competence was really the central piece for me. And the other four C's grew as I realized there's just other dimensions that must be, be uh, primary to this building of really championship boards. So the competence piece and the definition that I use is the mastery of knowledge and skills that enables one to possess deep understanding and consistently deliver high quality results. We often, I often have found that boards will use a simple chart. So they'll list what they want down the left side, and sometimes they'll use the word diversity. Sometimes they won't. But they'll say accounting, marketing, finance, uh, gender, age. You know, So they'll put these different pieces down the side, but they never really get to the core of what's good deliberation, what's sound judgment. We need to be do a better job at defining what good governance thinking is like. It's not a profession, although you can bring your business acumen to a nonprofit board, but at the same time, board members need to understand good governance. And so in the competence section, I go into detail about what I see as some primary aspects of the competencies. Let, let's t- stay, stay on competence a, a little bit. Why, why does, it, it, does it seem... Uh, and you can correct me if, if I just have this, this wrong. Um, board members are often recruited to be on a board um, because they have specific uh, skill sets. Um, you know, you, either you, know, you have a fi- financial background, we need someone on the board uh, that, that has that. You have a, a, a legal background or a public relations background. So in other, in other words, what, what draws the attention of the organization is someone who has specific skills and a, and a, and a, a specific um, uh, approach to business that perhaps is, is valued. But why it, does it seem that that so many, not all, but so many boards, uh, board members join a board of directors and then appear to leave common sense behind? <laughs> that's, that, yeah, that's the big question, isn't it? Uh, I, there's a, a wonderful statement by John Carver uh, when he said, well, I just need to find, I wrote it down here. Um, Give me one moment here. Well, I'll have to come back to it. I just can't put my fingers on it right now. Um, but he talks about that, that particularly that um, boards are made up of very competent people who act incompetently, I think is how Carver put it. And I, I thought mm-hmm. that was a really interesting insight that, yes, what do we do when we get there? Uh, so often little attention is paid to some of the most important aspects of governing, right? And so it's, uh, uh, it's really important to, to not leave your sensibility outside the boardroom, but to really apply it more. And I talk about crossing the threshold of commitment that you have to be all in. You have to just say, this is mine, the good, bad, and the ugly. I own it. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm going to own it. We're going to figure out how we take this organization to the next level, but really to look at a broad range of competencies. Sometimes people recruit professional business acumen just because they want to get free help. But I think that that's okay and that's, that's nice, but there are other ways to get that, and we should focus more on 
really thinking about what competencies do we need, and I go over those again in pretty deep detail, to, to thrive as a nonprofit organization, and let's recruit for that. Right. Yeah. And I often think that, you know, sometimes uh, or oftentimes when board members sort of get fall into, you know, that 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 trap of, of, of appearing to leave their common sense behind is is that they join a board of directors and it's almost as if they they are taking on the, the playing of a role that I'm now a yeah. member of a board of directors and instead of realizing that it, that it is their very common sense and their life experience and the, you know, what, uh, you know, what they bring to the board that makes them special and, and to not leave that behind. But, but do we ever say that? Do we, do we ever make yeah. it okay to just be yourself or do do oftentimes do board members fall into this trap because they feel like they must act in a certain way? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and I I go into that as well. I think that people just need to be authentically present, right? To to really contribute from both their heart and mind, because nonprofits there's a good need for people's hearts in this work, because it's it's quite challenging. So, yeah, I I, I agree. The next uh, the next C under recruitment um, sounds on the on the the surface of it to be sort of self explanatory, but I think you mean an awful lot more about connections. Yes, yes, connections. You, you know, boards are, uh, nonprofits are growing at about 5% compound rate per year, and philanthropy is growing at about half that. So there's constantly more and more pressure for fundraising. And so many boards have made that a priority, and they forget um, that there are other connections than to wealth. Are you connected to the community you serve? Are you connected to those who might be influential in the community to help you do your job? You know, are you connected in ways that will really promote you? And have you thought about that strategically, who we need to be connected to to serve our mission and to expand our presence? Now, of course, uh, some, some uh, uh, CEOs, uh, some even other board members might view that as simply connections of money or wealth who who do you know who's right. going to bring money to to the table right. but it, it is much more than that is of course we're not going to say no oh you know somebody who could bring money to the organization of course that that has value um, but there's right. an awful lot more to connections in a community than just money absolutely and i I won't foreshadow the next chapter, but I get into it more deeply when I talk about composition, about the importance of the connections that really uh, serve the mission and serve the public trust, serve communities, uh, serve people or animals or um, institutional causes that are important to communities. So it, it's, it's really about figuring out what is the breadth of the ways that we need to be connected within our community. And as you said, wealth is absolutely one of them, but it shouldn't uh, outbalance the other needs to connect to your community. Because sometimes you can build fundraising committees with people apart from the board. Um, the board, and I'll talk about later about in terms of continuity about the board's role in fundraising, but it's, uh, it's not the only thing as you say. 
moving on is, is as you mentioned the next c is is uh, is is composition and 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 i'm just wondering are, are you going are you going to settle the issue that that so many have have discussed and 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 weighed in on what is the perfect composition of the perfect board of directors <laughs> yeah yeah what i dig into here um is the whole sense of how's the best way to describe this? Well, probably the best way is by the, uh, the, the definition, and that's how various elements of the whole are combined and relate to one another. And what we have missed is the whole. We've missed whole sections of our culture, and our culture is evolving so, so rapidly. And as I say, some minorities are going to be majorities and vice versa in the coming decades. And are we adapting to, um, are we adapting to the new normal of what our country looks like? I dig into things like implicit bias, uh, enculturation, uh, stereotyping, and uh, social categorization. And so I spend a lot of time in this chapter dealing with what does composition look like in our world as we live it today, especially in light of what's gone on this last summer with, with social justice and equity. Mm-hmm. There's a lot here. And uh, I shared this chapter with uh, four different uh, black colleagues who really helped me understand from a different perspective how monolithic our nonprofit sector really is. It tends to be white mm-hmm. women mostly. Um, but how do we adjust who we are and how we present ourselves as nonprofits if we are indeed champions of the public trust as well. So that's well, a I big issue. Was, I learned a lot writing the chapter. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I learned a lot by, by reading it, but I thought it was, it was sort of interesting. And I wondered if you place that at the center of the book on purpose in, in that so, so much of our society today is focused on uh, and needs to focus on these topics of diversity and equity and inclusion. And certainly, as you mentioned the, this last summer, you know, sort of laying bare, you know, the topics of, of social justice. Yet many nonprofit organizations, when we're looking at composition of a board of directors, um, tends to look like each other. Um, as opposed to um, looking like the communities that they serve uh, or seeking to have that kind of diversity because, you know, quite honestly, and it's not, not meant to uh, find fault in, in, in all board members, but, you know, when we seek to spend time together with people, uh, many, many people would prefer to spend pe- time with people like themselves. Um, whereas, you know, the role of a board of directors, as you said, and we started off this uh, today's um, discussion with, you know, that central role of maintaining the public trust uh, for a nonprofit. There are no shareholders. You know, the, the, this is, this is a, 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 uh, an organization that's held in trust to serve the community, not just a right. part of the community. So, so I thought it was interesting that you put this composition chapter right at the center of the, the, the book uh, before moving on to onboarding. What, what specific um, recommendations, because this is such a hot topic for everyone, um, can, can you give in terms of navigating 
you know, what, what are, for a lot of nonprofits listening today, are new waters, waters that they understand they need to navigate but don't necessarily know how to start or, or where to go. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that, that is, well, backing up a step, it became the heart of the book, and I would say that's it. It wasn't intentional when I started out. As I wrote this chapter, I, it was a learning experience for me to see beyond my own implicit bias that I wasn't as aware of once I started talking to people of color about their take on the nonprofit sector. And it opened my eyes to see that, that it really is larger than, than I think the sector recognizes it. And I'm not only dealing with race, I'm dealing with gender, sexual preference, all of these pieces are important to individuals and somewhat they've been dismissed even by me by not seeing their importance because of our historical, and I would say systemic racism. People may not agree with me, but I have enough friends in the black community that I've seen it over my lifetime. And it is important for us, um, particularly those who are in the majority cultures to, to take a look at how we might hold biases without even intentionally doing it, and to really do a self-evaluation. Um, Harvard has this project called Project Implicit, and you can log on and it's in the book, and you can check to see where your biases might be. It deals with all sorts of issues, age, gender, disability, and as you work through the exercise, it will tell you where your biases might be once you complete it. And so I encourage everyone to do that. Because it's, it's not only racial equity, it's, it's equity across the board. And if we are representing our communities, we need to look at them and say, are we representing our communities in terms of providing what they need? As, as uh, one of the people I interviewed, he said, when my son saw Barack Obama become president, he came up to me and said, Dad, I could be president someday. And he said, that blew me away that my son would, would see that just because of what he's seeing, how our culture is changing. There's, um, well, it's, again, it's one of the things that, that I'm, I'm, I really enjoyed about this book is, is that you did place that at the center of this book as sort of the, you know, the, the pivotal topic that, that has to be addressed between recruitment and onboarding. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a wonderful um, educator, I'm sure you're, you're familiar with, Jane Elliott, um, and, uh, mm -hmm. and, and she, you know, she obviously speaks about a lot of different things, but, you know, one of the things that, that she's fond of, of sort of, you know, sort of shocking her audiences, uh, who, you know, many, many times, you know, she'll, she'll be speaking in front of pr primarily white audiences and she'll simply ask, um, by a show of hands, how many of you here would, would want to be treated the way black people are treated? <laughs> and just let that, that yeah. settle in, and no one raises their hand, which she then points out to say, well, then clearly there's a difference. Because if there yeah. is no difference, then you would have no trouble saying that you, you're okay to be treated just as a black person is or, or anyone else, because there is no difference. Of course, there's a difference. And understanding yeah. that and understanding, you know, the, again, I think the, the powerful nature of a nonprofit organization is held in trust for the public good. Um, and that public yeah. good is public writ large. Um, so I, right. I appreciated how you how you focused on that. 
Well, what about the, the you know, sort of the age-old topics of, of sort of um, ideal size of a board and, and composition? You know, I, I think, you know, you're, you're rightfully focusing on uh, topics of today, and I think you're doing that in a way that, that, that most books written in this topic simply were not aware of that those issues or, or chose not to address those issues. And, and I think it makes your book, you know, all the more relevant uh, for today and for today's boards of directors. Um, but um, but there are still issues that um, that regardless of diversity and equity and inclusion and, and community um, mm-hmm. uh, representation, um, there are still the issues that that sort of sit out there of you know is there mm-hmm. a an optimum size to a board of directors? Is there an optimum composition uh, of you know apart from um, the diversity issues that yeah. we talked about? Yes, the old adage was a smaller board is easier to manage. A larger board is better for fundraising. But I think that's also changing. My approach is don't look at shooting for a number. Look at developing a competent board of champions. So build. So don't just expand to reach your magic number. Expand a competent board because the number of of governors passed a certain point because you need to have a good chunk of members, but focus on building a competent board. Uh, I had one client that went through a a tremendous transition and uh, at the end of the day had a smaller board, but 10 times as effective because everybody was all in for the cause. And, and that's what makes the difference. So focus on recruitment of champions and build your board from there. And, and of course, on larger boards, it's easier for for some people to just take a back seat and let others do all the work. Um, listen, uh, we're going to uh, take a quick uh, break here, and when we come back, uh, we're going to turn our attention to the second part of this uh, terrific book, and that is uh, the topic of onboarding. And uh, we'll be right back. Life gets busy. Wouldn't it be nice to have a central place where you could save what's on your mind? With Google Keep, you can stay on top of your world by quickly and easily organizing everything you want to remember. No matter where you are, finalize door list for Thursday's gig. So when you find inspiration, you can file away your ideas. And Google Keep stores them safely across all your devices. When the time comes, you'll have everything covered. Save what's on your mind. Google Keep. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always free and always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. On iTunes, and now, just say, Alexa, play Nonprofit Coach on TuneIn. Now back to the Nonprofit Coach Podcast with Ted Hart. We're back here with uh, James Mueller, who is the author of a terrific new book, Onboarding Champions, the essential guidebook for every nonprofit board member and executive. Um, so, uh, James, when we, uh, when we went away for the break, I promise that when we came back, we, uh, we would jump uh, right into the second part of, uh, of this book. And, of course, you know, moving from uh, recruitment, the, the next topic is onboarding that, that board. Um, and, and you put a great deal of emphasis on continuity, um, so much so 
uh, that you've broken that down into three different sections. So let's let's uh, let's first of all start off with uh, continuity part one premise. Sure, and uh, I define that as the unbroken and consistent operation of something over a period of time. Um, I was seeking for a metaphor to um, describe what, what, what this concept was of how everyone is well-informed and hooked up, how the programs are connected, and continuity came to mind because I grew up on a dairy farm and was involved in making sure all of our electrical circuits were on place, and that made so much sense that you need to be plugged in. Circuits can't be overloaded, but it has to be well-designed. So I talk a lot about that in the, the first chapter um, about the board's responsibility to take care of continuity within the organization. Does the, the premise of continuity that you lay out uh, in chapter six of this book um, sort of lay in opposition to you know, the, the rather you know, really articulate way that you laid out composition? Um, and, and, you know, where, where does sort of uh, tradition and heritage run up against the need to yeah. change and modify to uh, a changing community? Yeah, you know, that's, that's, that's a really important point. It's, um, it, it, it's really about unplugging and stepping back and just taking a look at, do we really understand the organization and one of the uh, uh, anecdotes that I use, I use several stories throughout the book uh, to elucidate the points. And the one I use in this case is uh, a new board chair who came in, didn't understand the problems. There was a crisis, and his solution was to fire the chief uh, executive officer and the chief development officer. And I go into detail because they had they had contracted with us to do a a program review and we did a very in-depth study of the organization talking to their funders talking to their constituents talking to board members and staff members and what we saw was a complex organization in crisis that probably could have been avoided but it was more complex than the the, the board chair wanted to, to to acknowledge because he didn't understand the organization um, and so it's so important in your educational process to all board members that they really understand what this organization does for the community and how it gets it done. So uh, turning our attention to the second part of continuity, people, what people are you talking about? What, where, what should we be focused on uh, when we're in the, in the onboarding process um, uh, that for people? Who, who are we focused on? Yeah. Yeah, you, you touched on that earlier when you talked about being authentic. And, and so part of it is to make sure that you're focusing on the people. And so you're looking at character, competence, connections, right? But you're also looking for those who have the ability to govern, right? So that there are governance responsibilities. So as you look at people to bring them on board, do they understand what governance is and what makes a highly effective board? So that's the introduction to that section on people. But then I go into depth with the CEO and board responsibilities and how muddled that can get sometimes. 
and it often can be muddled, but, but why do you think it gets muddled? And is there an answer to, to sort of that, that age old quandary? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the board, someone once told me, and I love the definition, the board is what the CEO is how, and you need to stand on, uh, each of you needs to stand on either side of that line that once the board encroaches in management, it's lost its ability to, to do oversight because you can't oversee yourself. So the board really needs to respect that line. In addition, I have seen so many nonprofit board members who understand management and they come in and they want to manage the organization rather than govern it. And I work a lot with CEOs of helping push back gently uh, and I have a conversation with the board chair and CEO this week, in fact, about that very topic. But we want to want the board to stay on the side of governance, but really help them understand what the difference is and how clearly you need to be outside the management piece and let the CEO govern. The other thing they get confused about, I find, is that they think the chair of the board manages the CEO. And this is where you held me back earlier when I started to talk about this topic because it's, it's a lively one. And that is initially the title was executive director. And that title more explicitly defines the role. The CEO was or is the executive director. So they're partners in management. And so the executive director is responsible for managing the day-to-day -day operations and make sure that the policies and procedures, the strategy and vision approved by the board is carried out effectively. And so uh, I also talk a little bit about how to work effectively with, um, with uh, the board chair and the CEO. And I, I mentioned that what I suggest is that you have a committee that works with the CEO at the beginning of the year. So everybody is on the same page and you look forward through the year as to what you hope to accomplish and then create a collaborative conversation every two months, every quarter about how that progress is going, but lay it out at the beginning of the year, not uh, instead of doing an assessment at the end of the year, use a coaching process. Yeah. Well, and it also avoids sort of making it up as you go along. Right. I mean, it, it, you, <laughs> yeah. you can't, you can't, yeah. You can't know that you're that you've been successful if there was never a plan to succeed. Right, right, that's right. Because almost anything that you do, you know, could be acceptable. So, are you challenging yourself? Are you challenging your staff? But is it also appropriate to the resources that are available? Um, so, so there, right. you know, there is a, a dialogue here. I, I think when you start talking about the board of directors and the CEO and that interplay, you've got all of the listeners of this podcast, you know, sitting on the edge of their seat um, because, you know, sometimes that's a very difficult relationship and sometimes it's yeah. a cozy relationship. So right. how do you, how do you right. strike the right balance? Yeah. And that's why I suggest this, uh, having a three person committee, first of all, so that it, it um, deflects the board chair playing the role of supervisor because the executive director comes with the other directors and they have a conversation about how the executive plans to move the program forward. So at the beginning of the year, the board, these members of this CEO relationship committee, you might call it, 
get together with the CEO to just outline what will be expected, what will be achieved. And the board should have a lot of input on its expectations for outcomes. And it should be a, a conversation and, the, and an agreement because as you progress through the year, things are going to change. So that's why I recommend two to three month intervals of check-in so you can see where things are going, how they're progressing and, and make adjustments. And again, not wait till the end of the year. But it has to be collaborative, and, and boards have to understand that. And the CEO as well, as you said, can either get too cozy or the CEO can undermine the board. And you have to get mm -hmm. that right balance, and you're right, Ted, that's a tough one. Mm -hmm. Well, not, not quite as tough as your next topic, continuity of finance and fundraising, uh, where <laughs> everyone's sure that's somebody else's job. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I uh, – one of the things I say is that, and I tell this to board members, the last thing you should be talking about is fundraising. And they said, what do you mean? I said, because the last thing you do in fundraising is talk about asking for the gift. It's all about effective storytelling. So there are so many roles that board members can play in fundraising. But let's dial back to finance for a moment. Um, the finance should be about the value to people's lives, not the bottom line uh, exclusively. And I use a, a story within the book that talks about how this can be challenging. But at the end of the day, it's a, it's a decision about how can you most use your resources because the market does not support a nonprofit. That's why it's a nonprofit. There's a no market that it's stable in. So there's always going to be the need for philanthropy there's, because you're serving difficult to serve audiences or those that, that there's no market to serve them. So it's important to really connect around the value to lives when you use your finance, uh, when, when you make financial decisions, excuse me. Uh, but then shifting back to fundraising, it's really about storytelling. And the roles I talk that people can play are investors. For instance, you're, the pay-to-play game, I call it, and that is give or get or a minimum amount. I am, I am vocally uh, against that because it, it does so many things. First of all, it, it marginalizes those who don't have money or don't have a lot of connections, and it makes them less important. But it also changes the dynamic of things. Instead of having board members have a requirement for raising money, you should talk to them as investors first. If they served on a for-profit board, would they buy shares in the company? Well, are they making investments in the non-for-profit to their ability. And then the second role I talk about is being friend raisers, that that is really important. Studies have shown that adding more volunteers to your fundraising program doesn't raise more money, but adding more staff members does. There have been a number of studies that show that. But the important things about friend raisers are that board members open doors that staff cannot. Board members have a connection to community and people that is critically important for raising gift potential, you might say. So then from fundraisers to storytellers, I talk about as a, as a killer combination. And then their, their gift prospects as well. So setting aside the give and get, what is an appropriate ask for each board member, the chair of the board, unless the chair is not the right person for this, and sometimes that's the case. Maybe it's the chair of the, the fundraising committee, advancement committee, major gifts, whatever, whatever it's called within the organization, should look at each person as a gift prospect. 
and not expect them to give, but to cultivate their interests, to inspire them, because giving comes from inspiration. Giving from requirement leads to donor fatigue, and, and you, the gifts fall off pretty quickly. So look at your board members as you would any gift prospect. And finally, solicitors. There are some people who are, who are very good solicitors and to work with those, but it's a very small portion of your board. For the most part, what I've seen is about 15% that are comfortable with it. If you have more on your board, then you're doing really, really well. What about uh, the, the role of, uh, of rotation and tenure uh, on the board? Where, yeah. where do you come down on those topics? Yeah, I, I talk, uh, I lay that out pretty clearly in the beginning of the book, the benefits and challenges, because there's both sides of the equation. The benefit is to stay uh, current with your community that's going on and changes in your community. To So term limits, I'm saying I'm, a, I'm an advocate for, because, well, first of all, if you have an unproductive board member, it's very hard to, and I've never seen a board chair interested in telling someone, you know, they aren't doing their job and they need to leave. That that hardly ever happens. And term limits gives the, the board and the uh, board member uh, a, a gracious way to part ways if they don't have another term that they serve on. Um, but there's also the idea of that it, it keeps you current with your community. It helps you take a look each year as to what might we need this year that we didn't need last year and our board and governance. So there are a number of things you do. It is disruptive. That's one of the challenges. You do lose history and memory. So there, the challenges are, are part of it all, but I believe that the benefits outweigh, especially if you're trying to effectively manage an, an excited board that's current with its population it serves. One of the, the things that, that I have found in, in uh, particularly the finance and fundraising area is, you know, there, there are so many nonprofits that sort of exist out of memory, out, out of, you know, just out of habit. Um, and, and I think it's, it's, it's good for boards and directors to, to take time out and to just simply ask the question, you know, why do we exist? What do we do? Are we still effective? Are we still needed? Right. Uh, because, you know, when it, when it comes to, well, it's time to pass the budget and it's time for the annual gala and it's time for these things that have just always happened, it's not always tied to are we doing the best job? Are we meeting the needs of our community? Yeah. Are we in touch with the mission that we were set out to. Where, where do all Absolutely. of those fit in to, to this, this sort of overarching concept that, we, that we've been discussing today, and that is sort of the self-awareness of the organization? Right. Yeah, it is board education throughout the year. And whether it's self-reflection and evaluation or whether it's looking toward the opportunities that it's poking around the edges, uh, it's using generative thinking. It's, it's a discipline, right, to, to constantly be – imagining what could we do new, different, or better. So yeah, that's a, uh, my good friend Chuck Loring calls it the habit, history and habit that keeps us from moving forward. We've always done it this way, so we'll continue to do it this way, when in fact you need to really constantly, and that's, that's one of the most difficult things because you, you have to be somewhat disruptive in an ongoing way with a nonprofit board because you're constantly recruiting new members, your, your, your audience might be changing, your, your mission delivery uh, environmental factors might be changing. So governance is, is very dynamic and must be alive and in tune with their environment to be effective exactly as you suggested. It's a tall order that you, that you lay out to, 
to constantly be thinking of disruption, constantly be connected to a changing community, and, and, and yet um, we, we end with collaboration. Uh, so so right. tie that back to um, why collaboration sort of wraps up the seven C's. Yeah, it's, it's a mindset. I talk about that. Uh, David Lapiana has written a lot about uh, collaboration organizationally, but I'm using the word in terms of the mindset. Do I have a collaborative mindset? Am I, am I working together to achieve a common goal? And that, that, that's really important across the board is do I work well with my colleagues on the board, but am I looking at collaborative opportunities outside the board? But you can only be collaborative if you've dealt with all of the other pieces, that you have a confidence in where you're going and what you're doing, that you have the right people in the right seats on the bus, as Collins would say, on the, around the board room table or nowadays around the Zoom screen. But it's, it's all really important to figure out how do we have this mindset of internally working together but also outside in the community. Funders want nonprofits to collaborate, and I've never seen it done very well for the most part. There are some examples of it. But oftentimes it's very hard to do because people feel their resources are so tight they don't, they don't trust. And I go into this a little bit in the book. And so they're suspicious of motives. So trying to figure out how to do that is very, very difficult. I've seen it achieved, and it's when what, uh, there was a book written a few years ago called Tribal Leadership, and they talk about that the, most, the highest performing teams have this sense of a noble cause and innocent wonderment. And it's the idea that if you can key into the passion for the organization and you really want to see its, its fruits in, in the community now, that you're going to be able to have a sense of that innocent wonderment. And when you're in that space of pursuing a noble cause, you invite others to participate. You don't put up walls. You put out invitations. So, is collaboration, you, you sort of sail that ship back into that harbor, um, is, uh, is collaboration the goal or is collaboration the outcome of having been successful in the other six C's? The latter, I think, because there, it is an outcome to some extent because it's, it's, you can get to collaboration when you get the other pieces in place. Um, but it, but it is something you can do all along the way. So it, it's not particularly just the the uh, end game of it all. It's just an important thing to focus upon once you have all of the other pieces in place. So let's say that uh, as we uh, we wrap up uh, our time here together, let's say that uh, our listeners are sold on the seven C's, uh, sold on on the uh, the concept of onboarding uh, champions. Um, who starts? How do, how, do you, how do you get this going? Is this the board chair? Is this the CEO? How, how do you start this dialogue? Yeah, it's, uh, it's getting the board chair's attention and the CEO. And I talk about that partnership uh, throughout the book, how important that partnership is. But the CEO is, is more on the ground and has more ability to provide the resources to get this going. Yet the board chair is such a critical role in, in, in the organization for really making this happen. Board chair has to be the champion of getting this done. And it's, you start doing it because you either have a chair that's aware 
or an organization that's hit, hit a wall and you realize we have to do something differently here. Things aren't functioning. Things are falling apart. What do we need to do? Well, it's really about taking care of your culture first, which I talk about, and looking for people of character, making sure you have competence, right? Making sure you have the right connections and then the right composition and then continuity that everybody understands how the organization is wired and then they can work together to reach a common goal. How often do you find that it's funders who are the impetus of change? Um, I've seen funders go both ways on this. They want to see it, but there's always a line that they stand behind. Not all of them. I've seen some that really just get really engaged with the nonprofit uh, board member in wanting them to do things, but they don't govern the organization, so they can't affect change. They can only nudge towards change. And, yeah. and so yeah. I think it's a good thing for boards, to, to, for foundations to do that, but I haven't seen them have the, really, the ability to make it happen. James Mueller, I want to thank you for being my guest here today. Will you uh, wrap up and summarize all this for us and make sure that uh, my listeners know how they can reach you? Sure. Um, there are about 1.6 million 501c3 nonprofits in the country, and many of those have subsidiaries. So we have no idea of the numbers of boards of directors. What, maybe 15 million if you start to do all the math on this? Yet here are a group of people that are good intentioned but not really trained or educated about how to do good governance. So it's really critical because it is a fiduciary responsibility to have a board of trustees. And so to really make the organization thrive and educating these 15 million maybe board members throughout the country, you really have to start with a, a framework. And so the one I laid out here, I throw in practical exercises. I have assessment at the end of the book so that it's really pragmatic. And I suggest you can, you can tune in to any section where you're really concerned. So if it's about confidence of board to govern, start there and move to the other sections. But it's really about finding a place to get traction. So the conclusion has these exercises to help you do that as well. But it's a matter of working on one piece at a time. You can't tackle it all. Where is the opportunity to bring about some change or improvement, and how do you get there? And for CEOs and board chairs, the board chair is the most powerful person in the non-for-profit sector, and they need to take that job seriously because they can destroy or create great things, right? And so it's a, it's a matter of making sure that you have the right board chair as well as the right board. So I've been doing this a long time, obviously, <clears throat> but I have a website, jmuellerandassociates.com, and you can go there. And I'm also happy to give you my phone number, which is 847-708-5500. And uh, you can, on the website, you can reach out to me. You can reach out to me via email or even give me a call or text. James Mueller, again, thank you so much, uh, not only for being my guest, but for writing uh, really a terrific book uh, for board governance uh, for this time um, that, that brings up and raises important topics that I'm not sure uh, you're going to find addressed in the same way elsewhere. It's a very approachable book, and I want to thank you again for your time here today on the nonprofit. And thank you so much for that. 
You've been listening to the Nonprofit Coach Podcast with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcasts at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to the Nonprofit Coach. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.